Welcome to Mindharma, real conversations about what really matters. Our next guest on the Mindharma podcast is James Maskey, who works at Fortum Australia, a not-for-profit wellbeing support organisation for first responders and their families. James was 24 when he was diagnosed with PTSD in late 2013. James was a highly regarded young police officer stationed in the Logan district between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. In his own words, James was old enough to know his PTSD was from cumulative trauma, young enough to have no idea what it meant to live with the symptoms. Rather than seek support from the Queensland Police Force, James was advised to keep his mental illness a secret. He even became a plainclothes investigator with the Logan District Child Protection and Investigation Unit until it became too much. In this podcast with host Dean Yates, James talks about being diagnosed with PTSD so early in his career, what he's learned about his injury and how he's found new meaning in life. In 2018, Beyond Blue released a major report that showed one in three first responders in Australia experienced high or very high psychological distress. It showed 10% of all first responders probably had PTSD. That number jumped to 25% for former police and emergency services personnel. The report also found that poor workplace practices and culture were as damaging to first responders as occupational trauma. James Maskey is the human face behind that alarming data. James was also formerly the National Engagement Manager of Beyond Blue's Police and Emergency Services Programme. In his current work at Fortum, James is deeply committed to driving cultural change, high-value policy reform and additional government support to support positive mental health and well-being in the first responder sector. Additionally, James is a passionate advocate for individual first responders and works tirelessly to increase help-seeking behaviours, remove barriers to accessing supports such as entrenched stigma and ultimately create mentally healthy workplaces within the first responder sector. We hope you enjoy this important and candid conversation with the incredibly inspiring James Maskey. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their ancestors, elders and Aboriginal leaders, past, present and emerging. Hi, James. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Dean. And mate, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Pleasure. James, tell me about your life as a teenager growing up on the Gold Coast. It sounds like you were a bit of an overachiever. Mate, I had a wonderful childhood. Um, for the first 12 years of my life, I grew up on Tamarie Mountain, which is uh, Gold Coast hinterland, uh, you know, exploring rainforests and uh, playing in our big backyard. It was a great sort of regional Gold Coast upbringing. Um when I was about 13, we moved down to Metro Gold Coast, and I enrolled in a in a private school down there. And uh, it was a mate, it was a great school. Um, I was exposed to some fantastic opportunities. I was a saxophone player. We went overseas. We toured Disneyland, um, mate. I uh, was actively involved in debating and public speaking. Um, captain of the tennis team, um, and then. Come year 12, uh, I became school captain and received a, uh, a dean's scholarship to go study at Bond University. So I guess it, uh, I, I feel quite privileged in, in mentioning this upbringing. And uh, it was one that I look back on really, really fondly, mate. Great exposure to some fantastic opportunities. And what did you study at Bond University? Mate, I studied undergraduate law. Um, I got halfway through and realised that uh, the life of a solicitor wasn't for me. Um, so I changed my course to business law because um, I really started to enjoy, uh, I guess, some of the the management principles and people management and HR. Uh, so they were electives that I added and and came out the other side with a Bachelor of Business Laws. And um, once again, I guess I was a bit unsure around what my next step would be, which which really led me to policing, to be honest. Yeah, this doesn't sound like the typical uh, career path of a, a, a police a police officer. Tell me, why did you want to become a copper? Mate, you, you're not wrong. Um, a lot of people who want to become coppers either have this dream as a child or uh, they spend their working career wishing that they tried something uh, in the first responder sector and they eventually get their mid-career. Uh, for me, I, I guess I looked at my age and stage. I was 21 years of age. Um, I was relatively young, relatively fit and healthy. And um, 
you know, I had a real desire to serve the community. And I put all that together, plus, I guess, the undergraduate experience that I had at Bond Uni. And the obvious sort of uh, recipe for me was to join the Queensland Police Service. Um, I applied to New South Wales Police and the AFP at the same time, and, and Queensland was the first jurisdiction to come back to me and offer me a position in the academy. So I guess that's that's how I came to be in the police service was um, just looking at uh, my experience, my age and stage, and that desire to help the community and, and piecing that all together. So in mid-2010, you were stationed as a first-year constable in the Logan District of Brisbane. Can you describe the type of call-outs you were getting, uh, what soon became your bread and butter? For those who don't know uh, the Logan Police District, it is uh, halfway between the Gold Coast and Brisbane, uh, sort of south metro Brisbane, and uh, it's one of the busiest areas for call-outs in the entire state. Um, We often used to say that uh, one year of policing in, in Logan is the equivalent to five years anywhere else in the state, except for maybe Mount Isa or, or, or relevant places like that. So the exposure to critical incidents was quite high and the volume that we would go to was also quite high. So for me, uh, to provide examples of that bread and butter, uh, domestic violence, murders, uh, responding to suicides, responding to sexual assaults, fatal traffic crashes, uh, high-speed pursuits of stolen vehicles when we were still able to pursue, and then street brawls. So all of these things really became the norm for me, which I guess to say that out loud actually sounds uh, quite weird, actually, to listen back. Uh, that was my normal experience. And all of these incidents were high impact and high adrenaline. This is in your first year out. Yeah, look, first year, in fact, uh, so six months at the academy took me to mid-2010. And uh, within my second week, uh, I already had presented my firearm, chased a stolen car and got in a street brawl at at a train station. So, I mean, what a baptism by fire to leave the academy and two weeks later have those critical incidents. Wow. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm trying not to, to smile because <laughs> yeah. you're smiling at me, James, but I, yes. I think we can, I, I can sort of see the, the potential psychological impact of all this down the track because we Absolutely. know how the story ends. But wow, as you say, what a baptism of fire. But this was what you wanted, right? You wanted to be in the front mm. line of policing and this is what you were getting. Mate, abs- absolutely. So for me, I was quite young and therefore, uh, dare I say, quite naive. I wanted that at critical exposure. Um, I prided myself on, on working in the Logan District and being one of the Logan District first responders. Um, that was a bit of a, a term that we used to, uh, I guess, highlight some of the exposure that we would receive, you know, Logan District First Response. And that was quite an elite uh, general duties policing team to be a part of, and I wanted that. I really, really did. You were getting recognition and accolades, and by the end of 2012, you were starting to unravel. What was going on? Mm. Yeah, I think it's um, it's quite important to state that um, on the surface, things seemed to be going quite well. In my first year, I was awarded the the Assistant Commissioner's First Year Achievement Shield. I got recognition from the Department of Justice and Attorney Generals for Youth Justice Investigations. And I was a finalist for the Police Officer of the Year Award in Logan, you know, in my first two years of of service, which is is quite rare. Underneath all of that, um, I felt like I was starting to unravel a bit. Um, I think for me, uh, that was probably the first time that I really started to develop the symptomology of my PTSD, although I didn't know it at the time. So what I was experiencing was, you know, I would often wake up in pools of cold sweat in the middle of the night. I just had arrested somebody in my sleep and uh, my partner at the time uh, would relay some of the the words I was using in the middle of, of my sleep to uh, to do that arrest. And, you know, it was quite a, an intense thing to wake up, you know, with heart palpitations and cold sweats. I would also come home from a night shift, uh, let's say it might be seven or eight o'clock in the morning, and I would sit down and make myself breakfast, snap open a beer or pour a large glass of wine. That didn't start to twig for me that that's not a normal experience for somebody else. I became quite easily irritated or or highly stressed from what some would actually call quite a minor inconvenience. I also pushed a lot of people away from me. 
I distanced myself from friendships. I withdrew from my personal relationship with my partner at the time, who's now my wife, actually. But uh, there was a real struggle to keep me present and keep me communicating. I think finally, uh, to touch on, I also started to view the world as unsafe. You know, if we, and that people couldn't be trusted as well. I mean, if I would go to a cafe, I would sit with my back to a wall, much like I am now in, in my own home, surveying the exits looking at entry exit points. If I was ever in a crowd or, a, you know, a, a festival or a, a music concert, I would always survey people's face and hands, just looking for where that next threat may come from. And I didn't really realise at the time that that's not an experience that many people have from the exposure to their job. That's quite unique uh, to me and to first responder employment. Yeah, especially a young bloke in his early 20s, right, to be that high Yeah, yeah. Ab- Absolutely. So what happened when you asked uh, senior officers for help? I remember when I was still in general duties policing, I went to my boss at the time and he was a relatively senior officer and an operational leader. And I started to relay what I just mentioned to you before to him to say that this is what I'm experiencing right now. And I don't think that this is okay, but I don't know what to do about it. I don't know where to Mm. turn. And the response that I was greeted with at the time was um, certainly one of, of empathy, uh, but then also one of uh, concern. This officer knew me uh, quite well, knew me to be young and eager and enthusiastic and wanting to progress in my career. And also, they were looking out for me in the way that they knew how. So I was actually told not to submit anything formal in writing, not to seek internal support services provided by the Queensland Police Service for fear of what that might do to my career. And if I needed support to actually seek that external, externally in the community, it caught me by surprise, to be honest, Dane. I expected a, a different response. I expected a, a bit of a safety net that the organisation would bolster my mental health and wellbeing through the support services provided. And rather, I got directed to seek support outside of the organisation. Do you think that worsened your mental health in a way? Mate, it did. It certainly delayed my help seeking. So that delay, meanwhile, I was still knee-deep in operational policing. I was still responding to highly critical incidents. In fact, there was probably a couple of murders that I went to as a first responder during that block of time. Some of them were quite gruesome, and that absolutely uh, worsened my my symptomology. But also, I think it played into the the shame and the stigma that I felt as well. Um, you know, if if I'm experiencing this, and the organisation doesn't support me, well, is it wrong? Am I wrong? And that's what I was experiencing at the time. So I think more exposure to critical incidents, delayed help-seeking, and then that uh, that feeling of something must be wrong with me. So, James, you finally sought uh, professional help privately in late 2013. Why was that? Things got to a point where I couldn't cope anymore, Dean. Um, I imploded my personal relationship with my partner at the time in quite a spectacular fashion. I then had to move out of the house that we bought together and I had to move back in with my parents. I was in my mid-20s and and to do that was quite a, a, I guess, a humbling thing. Um, I drank a lot. Uh, I would have uh, a bottle of uh, of scotch just in my bedroom cupboard. I mean, that's that's not normal. Um, And then I really withdrew from a lot of people. I couldn't say that my friends would know what I was experiencing because I kept them at an arm's distance, the same with my family. And my performance started to be impacted at work. For quite some time, I was able to keep up this facade that I was highly professional and highly you know, competent, but my paperwork started to become quite tardy and quite late and my locker was just filled with rubbish and I was rocking up late to work and things like that really became quite an issue. So... After countless people around me told told me that I needed to do something, finally I acknowledged that there was quite a bit of vulnerability in acknowledging the need that I that that I had. But the last time I tried to seek support, I was told no. So where do I go? Was the question that I was grappling with. I ended up going to my GP. Um, she was the only uh, sort of health professional that I had in my inner circle at that point. The only person that I trusted in that space. So I sat down with her. I booked a double session. I sort of relayed some of my traumatic experiences to her. Uh, she sat me down. We did the Kessler 10, uh, sort of like a benchmark of, of my mental health and well-being. 
And the results were that I wasn't traveling too well. So she made a, a Medicare mental health referral to a psychologist on the Gold Coast who has a particular passion for supporting first responders and their well-being. Uh, I went through several months of one-on-one cognitive behavior therapy uh, with this psychologist. We also, before we got to that point of doing CBT, um, we had to do a fair amount of groundwork to make sure that I was psychologically safe. Uh, So that was the initial starting point. And then we started to unpack some of that trauma. I stayed with him for, I want to say, probably five to six months, having weekly and fortnightly sessions, depending on the need. And then things got quite busy. I started making excuses and I stopped treatment with him after about a six-month block. That wasn't my only treatment uh, sort of block. And, you know, if we if we get to that in, in the questions and answers today, I'll certainly unpack that I'm still in uh, regular contact with my current psychologist. So I view that as quite important. But that initial sort of contact, that lasted for six months. So you've been diagnosed with PTSD at the end of 2013. In early 2014, you apply for and get your dream job, plain clothes investigator with the Logan District Child Protection and Investigation Unit. Had you considered that this might be akin to jumping from the frying pan into the fire for your mental health? What, what did this job entail? Mate, I love the imagery there because I think it's a great comparison. Uh, I went from high volume first responder work to very high impact first responder work. Um So the Child Protection Investigation Unit, it's a group of specialised detectives. There's a regional hub in every every town, and we provided um, law enforcement investigations uh, that involved young offenders, so offenders of serious and organised crime, but then really importantly as well, investigating crimes that were committed against young people, physical abuse, sexual abuse, harm, neglect. So when I was in this unit, to unpack some of the duties that I would do. Uh, Sometimes I would sit and survey terabytes of child exploitation material, uh, images and videos. You needed to categorise those different videos and images to put them in an evidence brief. Uh, So that was certainly part of the work that I did. We would investigate crimes uh, committed by the people who were duty-bound to protect uh, young people, so their parents, their uncles and aunties, the local sports teacher, And then we would also investigate really serious crimes, including grievous bodily harm and and attempted murder. Um, That attempted murder investigation, that was one of the last things that I did prior to leaving the Queensland Police Service. It was an attempted murder investigation of a six-month-old baby. And um, I have to say, nothing, nothing prepares you for that. In saying that, prior to going into the unit, I had to uh, sit a psychometric evaluation. And they... In that evaluation, they want to take a baseline measure of how you're traveling and then, um, you know, make uh, reasonable adjustments to support you in your duties as a child protection investigator. On that psychometric exam, I lied. I bought into the stigma and shame that surrounded my PTSD diagnosis. I thought I wouldn't get a look in at this really specialized role. And I think that was probably one of the most harmful things I could have done for my mental health is to actually say, no, I'm fine, no, I don't have a mental health diagnosis because I was thrown into the thick of it without any supports, without the organisation knowing that a couple of reasonable adjustments here or there would really help me thrive and survive in this line of employment. So you lied and were able to get away with that quite easily, were you? Yeah, what does that say about me, Dave? <laughs> no, I think uh, it was just an initial exam where there was no. a, a yes and no answer and I just said no. And if I was to circle yes, I guarantee you that I still would have had that position. I still would have been successful in that lateral transfer into the specialised unit, but I would have done so with really good support and care from my direct supervisors and the chain of command. Were you, were you sort of showing obvious signs of distress in, in the workplace that you think other officers, managers, supervisors should have picked up on? Not in the Child Protection Investigation Unit. I was seeking uh, psychological care at that point through that psychologist. And I had some good coping mechanisms and protective behaviours that we put in place. Prior to that, though, absolutely. I recall uh, in the day room at Crestmead Police Station where I used to work, I picked up a really heavy, busy recycling bin, threw it across the day room. Um, I left a shift early um, 
you know, with still my, my gun and my accoutrements still attached. Um, my paperwork was sloppy. I started turning up late. This is completely opposite to the police officer who was very early in his career being recognised with accolades and having really high arrest numbers and doing some really great things for the, the Logan district and the community. So absolutely, I was showing signs back then that people could have picked up on. But the mental health literacy of this sector is quite low. And I say that we as police officers, we, we attend mental health uh, presentations in the community all, all the time. It's one of the things that police do the most. When you say we, mental health presentations, you mean you go to you go to people who are having a mental health episode. Absolutely, yes. that's that's correct. Yes, and they are in crisis. Often they need to go to a an inpatient facility for treatment and, and care ongoing. When you see acute mental health uh, episodes in the community, and then you benchmark that against your own mental health and wellbeing, we go. Actually, I'm not as acute as this person was, so therefore I must be travelling okay. So in the first responder sector, our mental health and well-being is, in terms of our literacy around it, is quite low. So therefore, I, I harbour no animosity, uh, no anger around the other people that I used to work with in relation to not picking up on how I was travelling because we don't necessarily know how we're travelling very well at all because we benchmark it against acute presentations in the community. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Can you talk me through your decision to leave the police force in 2015, James? Yeah, look, I can. Um, I thoroughly loved working in the Child Protection Investigation Unit. You know, the officers in that unit are the most tenacious, dedicated professional investigators you could ever possibly imagine. But I had enough trauma exposure to last a lifetime. And I was five years, eight months in. So I was about six years. And I really had a bit of a crossroads moment where my partner invited me back into her life but through the proviso of i needed to stay well and stay plugged into some really good supports so that we can thrive as a couple from a career perspective i was also staring down the barrel of i'm six years in if i have a 40-year career which is quite possible given how young i was at the time how much more trauma exposure am i going to experience like gosh, something's got to be done here. To really propel us forward, my wife uh, was fortunate to be offered a PhD placement at Melbourne University to study under a, a supervisor that she really respects. And it was a great career move for her. So we made the decision uh, together to leave Queensland and to travel to Melbourne and start Relationship 2.0 uh, to rebuild our life together. And to, for me, it was to rebuild uh, me personally and professionally. Um, I went back to uni, uh, did some undergraduate, uh, sorry, postgraduate stu uh, studies at Griffith Uni online and started working in the community service space. I also focused more on my physical activity and nutrition and increasing positive sleep behaviours. And uh, all those things led me down the path of where I am now. But I have to say, Dean, it was not easy. There was about a six-month period there when we first moved to Melbourne where I was still one foot in and one foot out of first responder employment. I was missing the thrills and the adrenaline dump and you know that desire to help and protect the community. I applied actually for a lateral transfer to the Australian Federal Police Office in Melbourne. I never fully hit submit on my application because I knew it was the wrong thing to do for my mental health and well-being, but I miss that sector so much. So I think there was a period of, of grieving, grieving a career that I loved, grieving a career that I could do and I could do well, but that my mental health would be impacted if I did it again and struggling to, I guess, identify what I could do outside of policing. Moving to Melbourne was the best possible thing I could have ever done for my relationship, for my personal well-being and professionally. It opened up a lot of new doors and experiences. James, a PTSD diagnosis requires exposure to actual or threatened death, severe injury, or sexual violence. As you know, first responders are repeatedly exposed to this sort of trauma. What the PTSD formulation does not really capture, however, is the moral dimension of trauma, uh, the violation of what's right. How did this moral dimension of trauma apply to you? It played out a few different ways for me. 
I had and still have quite a strong sense of what I believe to be right and wrong, what's just and moral. Uh, for example, when I was a police officer, I would often go to domestic violence incidents. To me, a, a respectful and loving relationship is right. And responding to a serious injury caused uh, by the hands of a husband or wife or a significant other, that is wrong. Protecting young people against trauma and harm, to me, that feels right. Responding to trauma and harm caused by somebody who should be looking after that person rather than harming them, that felt morally wrong. And to me, working in a mentally healthy workplace, well, I believe that employers have an obligation to create a physically and safe uh, working environment for their employees. And I believe that there are benefits in promoting a mentally healthy workplace. Unfortunately, I didn't work in a mentally healthy workplace and first responder work is uh, often something that is a very challenging thing to do, not necessarily just because of exposure to trauma, but also the cultures and the organisational practices in which we work and to not feel supported by my boss. Once again, uh, he was doing the best that he knew how in, in a pretty broken system back then to not feel like I was supported, to reach internally for that support. Well, that also felt wrong to me. Um, so I definitely think that there is the interplay of, of moral injury for, for my, my story um, because we know that you know, moral injury is when something that we experience goes directly against the values that we hold to be true. That was certainly the case for me. My day-to-day -day job, the response that I had to do, many of the situations I would go to, that felt wrong to me and I had to right those wrongs. And in terms of the response of the organisation provided, well, once again, that felt quite wrong at the time. Was this something that, I'm really curious, James, was this something that that you, you spoke to fellow coppers about this, moral, you know, the moral dimension of trauma, moral injury, which for, for those listeners who are not, are not familiar with the concept, it's the notion that something uh, occurs that, that, Really, uh, it, it's sort of like a, a wound to the soul. It's when someone does something or fails to do something or witnesses something that is a, a, a deep contravention of their moral values. Is this something that you discuss with other colleagues in the police force, Jones? Or was it something we you would, sort of felt later? We would talk about some of the workplace injustices that we were exposed to. Um, there is certainly a sense of embitterment amongst many on the ground. Uh, well, there once upon a time used to be. I can't speak uh, for that to be true in 2022 on the ground, but certainly we'd speak about that. There would also be an unwritten acknowledgement or, an, or I guess a, an acknowledgement that's not necessarily verbalised, but it's a, a nod that when you go to a child death or when you go to a really serious domestic violence incident where somebody has ended up in a, in a fatal position, that's an acknowledgement. That is a bloody tough job and that that's not something that we should be exposed to and that has an impact on our psych psychological well-being. It's not necessarily spoken about because there is a high level of perceived stigma and self-stigma that exists around mental health challenges in the first responder sector. So rather than openly acknowledging it, it's something that we, we, we nod and we understand, but we don't speak about. That was true for my experience back then, but I am aware that there's a bit of a generational shift where new first responders coming into this employment understand that this is a tough job and that it's okay to be impacted by what you experience and that the workplace has an obligation to create and maintain a mentally healthy workplace. So there is that generational shift, but uh, at the time, probably something that wasn't as acknowledged as it could have been and something that I acknowledged years after. Uh, grappling with some of that moral injustice that I experienced. So is that generational shift actually taking place in police academy training now, for example? Mm. Do, you, do you see our, our young coppers actually getting better training when it comes to psych awareness and so on? Look, they are. And I do need to state that uh, my experience, uh, the academy was 2010. We are looking at, you know, 12 and a half years ago. Now, mental health and well-being is embedded into the curriculum. Uh, the organisation in which I work for has a standing invitation to, to come back to the Queensland Police Service Academy and provide, uh, I guess, information about the services that we provide. 
Additionally, the the impact of first responder work is acknowledged right mm-hmm. from the very start. Uh, prior to starting at the academy, there's a, a family and friends day and an information awareness evening where uh, organisations like ours and the Queensland Police Service more broadly acknowledge the trauma that somebody may experience. So right from day dot, they, there is an acknowledgement, which I didn't necessarily experience. Uh, my exposure to mental health uh, awareness and, and support was a two-day training package at the police academy in relation to community presentations of mental health and wellbeing. So somebody having a crisis in the community, this is what, as a police officer, you're expected to do. There was zero opportunities for me to learn about what supports were available at the academy and what impact this would have on my mental health and wellbeing. So there is a, a shift in the thinking of, of police service and first responder organisations more broadly. There is also um, more work being done in terms of creating mental health strategies for first responder agencies. There is a, a cradle to grave approach with this as well. So they're looking at what strategies need to be implemented for early recruits, mid-career and retiring members of this community to enhance their mental health and wellbeing. So there is a a real push to elevate this work. What that's butting up against is you've got senior members of these organisations who came up through the ranks in the 80s, 90s and the early 2000s that they were absolutely impacted by what they experienced. But at that time, there was that uh, culture of have a a teaspoon of concrete and toughen up. You know, I went through this, you can get through this, everybody experiences this, it's just part of the job, crack on with it. So that and new energised thinking is butting up against uh, layers of executive management who might not necessarily have a high awareness of their own mental health and wellbeing challenges and why it's important to create a mentally healthy workplace. Yeah, let's just talk about your, your role and the organisation you do work for now, which is called Fortum. What are the services it provides to first responders? And, and I, I also find, found this fascinating to families. It's a good question, and uh, and families is is a real focus point for Fordham Australia. We are Australia's only not-for-profit mental health and wellbeing support organisation at a national level for first responders and their families. We provide science-backed social connection activities and wellbeing activities. So this is the likes of, you know, stand-up paddleboarding, rock climbing, uh, cooking sessions, family groups, and much, much more that are underpinned by an evidence-based framework that promotes the benefits of staying socially connected to each other to your colleagues, to your community, but most importantly, to your family. There is a real protective factor in relation to social connection. So that's part of the services that we offer. We also provide culturally informed clinical psychological care. So we've got uh, a handful of clinicians who work at Fordham Australia who understand the unique challenges of being a first responder and how that plays out on mental health and wellbeing. So we provide confidential care that is free and it's independent from the organisation that they work in. So, you know, uh, first responders can access our services uh, with confidence that their confidentiality will be kept. We provide transition support. So for first responders who are looking to leave their organisation, either through uh, medical transition or through mid-career separation or age retirement or for any reason, we provide uh, case management Uh, support for first responders to enter new employment if that is their goal and we help them translate their their skills and experience into tangible uh, sort of um, qualifications and things put on their resume. We provide uh, job interview support, uh, introductions to our corporate partners but really importantly for people who don't want to work we also provide volunteer opportunities and we provide uh, opportunities to connect back in with family in our transition program. And the final thing that we uh, that we produce in our in our organisation is mental health literacy resources and stigma reduction initiatives. So we have an online resource library. Uh, we have a digital toolkit called Peak Fordham. We have uh, national days of action like Fordham's Thank First Responder Day, and we also provide uh, tangible. Um, sort of uh, resources for the first responder community and importantly their families so that they can understand and be prepared uh, for the unique challenges of first responder employment. Uh, so that's Fordham Australia in a nutshell. We uh, we were founded uh, in 2019 on World Mental Health Day, so three years young 
And um, our co-founders are also the co-founders and executives of Soldier On. So Soldier On is our sister organisation, providing supports for defence, and Fordham Australia provides supports for first responders and their families. And what's your role specifically, James? So I'm Fordham Australia's sector specialist. Um, I've held a couple of roles at Fordham. I was previously in the National Relationship Manager, so linking the work of Fordham Australia to first responder organisations nationally. Uh, these days, I help inform some of our comms, some of our policy reform agenda, uh, and I guess uh, some of the work of Fordham Australia to ensure that it's culturally appropriate for first responders and their families. Um, part of that work is getting out and about, speaking at conferences and podcasts, much like this, um, in addition to helping Fordham Australia with media releases and, and online content and, and the like. So I guess being a, a bit of a, a specialist for the sector is, is my particular mandate. James, um, are more and more emergency services personnel getting diagnosed with PTSD at an earlier stage in their careers like you did? And, and what are the implications of this? We know that first responder uh, PTSD increases with length of service. Uh, the organisation that I used to work for, Beyond Blue, had a national study. Uh, it's a world first study, and it looked at the mental health and well-being of the sector. And typically speaking, people who spend about zero to six years in employment in this sector are quite well. They can adapt to the challenges of the job. They've got appropriate supports in place. However, from about the six to 10 year mark, the impact of cumulative exposure to trauma, it really does take a toll. We know those who reach 10 years are, are twice as likely to experience psychological distress and six times more likely to have PTSD. Now, those findings are generalised. Um, they're aggregated uh, sort of data, but it serves as a guidepost. We know that people are getting injured early in their career, and that comes to a head about the six-plus-year mark. That was true for me. Uh, I resigned at five years and eight months after working in one of the busiest districts in the state. And, you know, there are implications. The more someone works in this sector, the longer they stay employed in this sector, the more, the more they're exposed to trauma and violence. However, we do know that with appropriate supports, both inside the workplace and importantly out in the community, first responders can stay well and they can thrive. Uh, just because they experience a, a challenge that sets them back with their mental health and well-being early in their career doesn't mean that they still can't remain employed in this sector. With the right supports, they can thrive, they can continue this career. One of the things that you've said in your, your, your sort of public advocacy for police and first responders is that to truly own your PTSD journey, you had to raise awareness of this injury and empower others to seek support. Can you talk me through how you came to this conclusion? Because it has meant putting yourself out there, right? Yeah, Dean, it really has. And uh, the very first time I did put myself out there, gosh, it was confronting. I remember writing a blog post for the very first time, uh, sharing my experience. As soon as I hit post, I closed the laptop, turned it off, and went for a very, very long walk without my devices. I was so, so anxious about what it meant for the very first time, to put yourself out there like that, especially to people who knew you but didn't know that you had a diagnosis of PTSD. The reason why I started to become more vocal in this space and to speak publicly and, and put myself on a bit of a platform for this is because I am striving to create the supports that I wish existed for me. Now, I can do that as an individual, and, and I did that up until a time until I joined Beyond Blue, or I can work with a, a really powerful organisation that does the right thing for first responders and their families like Fordham Australia. I think it is important, and it's quite critical actually, to embed lived experience in everything that organisations like Fordham does. It's all well and fine to have a, a mental health system that's designed by clinicians, but we need the lived experience community to actually inform what supports are required by us and what feels right and what doesn't. So for me, I felt like I had a responsibility and it was part of my recovery journey actually is to, is to be quite vulnerable because I don't want to see another first responder have the experience that I had. And I do acknowledge that I had it several years ago and, and first responder agencies have come on in leaps and bounds in terms of their mental health and wellbeing support. But I don't want somebody else to have my experience. I don't want another relationship to completely implode. I don't want another first responder to drink themselves to sleep on the couch. That's not okay. 
And for me, that's part of the the journey that I want to own is to share my lived experience so that others might not have the same experience that I had and so that they know where to go in terms of support seeking. That's really quite important. James, you're a what is called an ultra endurance athlete. I had to look that up. What does that mean? And and can you tell me about this frightening race you entered in Iceland in 2018 called Fire and Ice? It sounds like it was something out of Game of Thrones. Mate, uh, absolutely. Uh, and actually, speaking of Game of Thrones, Iceland is where a lot of the, the scenes of the wall were, were shot. So it is quite truly the land of fire and ice. Um, look, to, to answer your first question, what is an ultra-endurance athlete? Well, sometimes I do really silly things for a really long period of time. I have a, uh, I guess, an ability to withstand long physical activity to the point where it becomes an endurance event. So what I mean by that is uh, some people will enter a a half marathon or a full marathon. Uh, Ultra endurance work takes it to the next level. So you've got a 50K, 70K, 100K race. The Fire and Ice Ultra Marathon is a a collective 250 kilometres. It was broken up. It was a multi-stage race uh, broken up over six days. On average, it was about a marathon a day. Some days we would run 30K. Some days we would run about 65K. Averaged out about a marathon, uh, 250K total. Now, we did that in Iceland, uh, one of the coldest countries uh, in the in the Arctic Circle in the north, where although it was summertime in Iceland, where the race was running, it's always winter. So we uh, experienced temperatures no warmer than about two degrees. And the the average temperature was about minus 12, minus 15. Uh, at times, it completely snowed. We had a blizzard. We we're running through a blizzard at one point. Other times, it was beautifully sunny, but very, very cold. Everything we needed, uh, including nutrition, hydration, clothes, that's all on our backs. So we're running with a backpack of about 15 kilos. So put that all together, it is ultra-endurance running coupled with exposure to cold climate, coupled with uh, resistance training because you've got a 15-kilo backpack on your back. Um, and that was uh, in August of 2018. Since that time, uh, I experienced another endurance challenge where a group of my friends we took on an ultra endurance 24-hour world record attempt on a piece of gym equipment called the concept two ski erg sort of like um you know mimicking indoor skiing on a on a machine and we pushed ourselves team of four for 24 hours and we came away with a world record that was broken six months later this sounds like the definition of madness to me, but uh, <laughs> uh, well done to you. I, I mean, you. the fire and ice event, you obviously weren't just doing that for fun. What was the no. behind it? <laughs> so for me, the, the genesis was um, I could quite comfortably run an hour in terms of uh, being in a really great headspace. Anything over about an hour and my mind would start to drift back to some of the traumatic exposure that I had as a police officer. And for me, and I don't know what it's like for others, but it presented like a slide show reel. So I would see graphic images as my mind would start to wander, as I started to get more fatigued. It petrified me, the thought of spending more than a, an hour alone in my own head. So true to my personality, I thought, well, let's go big. Let's spend six days in our own heads to see what I can truly do in terms of overcoming my traumatic experiences but also i wanted to prove to myself because at that time i was still really suffering with ptsd symptoms i wanted to prove to myself that i'm more than a diagnosis i am more than the experiences that happened to me and whilst i still do struggle with symptomology i can do more than i believe possible additionally i wanted to use that event as a bit of a platform for raising awareness i know we've you know, there's so many organisations and individuals out there raising awareness for mental health and wellbeing. We're pretty aware that it's a, an ongoing issue in our society, right? But for the first responder sector, we dig our heads in the sand. I wanted to use it as a platform to challenge the stigma in this sector. I wanted to share my experiences vulnerably through that experience. So that's what brought me to Iceland. 
I've always wanted to go to Iceland, so there's an element of, of personal sort of travel passion there for me as well, and that's why I did that event. So did the did the six days of being with your own thoughts help with those memories? But it did. Um, I'm not going to say that it wasn't a challenge. In fact, I specifically remember on day four, the longest stage, it was about 68 or 69 kilometres. It wasn't flat running either. It was uphill and undulating terrain, quite technical. I had a hell of a day. I remember running out of my nutrition uh, because I was quite sick at that point and I threw up on the side of the road. And I remember crouching behind quite a large rock on the side of the road and just sobbing my absolute heart out. It was it was really challenging, Dean. For me, I graphically remember the images that came across my eyes as, as I was quite tired and quite delirious. And that was a really tough experience for me. However, I was still able to pick myself back up, strap on my shoes again, and finish the race, finish day four. I was so delirious that day, actually, Dean, that I could see the finish line for that day and I knew it was to my right and I started running to my left. I just, I got quite blurry-eyed. So I had to be supported to go back to my tent. Day five and day six happened and I finished the overall event and I finished psychologically well after that experience, which is is quite profound, actually, because I knew that I finished the race that day, so therefore I could finish day five, I could finish day six. And whilst it was very challenging at the time, I knew that I am more than a diagnosis because I picked myself back up and I ran those extra two days. And for me, I learned a lot of lessons through that race and through that event. But the most important one is that I am more than my diagnosis and it doesn't limit what I am capable of achieving. So tell me about how would you describe your mental health today, James, uh, nine years on since you were diagnosed with PTSD? Uh, today, today, Dean, I'm I'm well. I've had a great morning. I have a beautiful two-year-old daughter and a loving wife, and I was able to spend the morning with them before starting work. In saying that, there are days where they are tougher than others, and I equate it to the Canadian Mental Health Commission's um, mental health continuum model. There are good days. There are days where we struggle, and there are days where it's very hard to cope. And that continuum model is uh, sort of visualized in a green, amber, and red sort of color spectrum. And when you're in the green zone, you're thriving and you've got the right supports in place and you're having just a cracking day. In the yellow, you're finding it hard uh, to to cope with the day and some of the stresses that are thrown your way. And, And red, you're in that really critically unwell space. Now, for me, I live with a diagnosis of mental health, um, PTSD, and some days I will be in the green, other days I'll be in the amber, and some days, unfortunately, I'm in the red. But I think it's it's important to state that, for me, my mental health is not a fixed state. I will slide up and down that continuum depending on the day, depending on what the day throws at me. The beautiful thing is, when I do enter that amber or that red zone, um, I have an incredible psychologist who I see regularly. We've got a monthly standing appointment and we've unpacked a lot of trauma. But the most important thing that we've done in my eyes is we've developed a range of protective coping mechanisms uh, that are relevant for me. So I have a toolkit that I can reach into and I practice these things when things aren't going well for me. And it can help me cope with the stresses of the day and edge myself closer to that green end of the continuum. So I think for me, I'm an ongoing journey with my mental health and well-being. I think most people are, and I will continue to be. But I acknowledge that I've got the right supports in place, and I've got some really beautiful things in my life that help me stay well and thrive. James, I've got one last question for you. What is your mental health advice for young coppers? It's one of the most important questions that we've uh, we've had the pleasure of speaking on today, Dean. When people enter this line of employment, They want to protect and serve the community. And I think the community owes a great debt of gratitude. First responders give a lot. And I really am hesitant to ask them to give more. What I do want to do, though, is to let them know that this important line of work doesn't have to come at the cost of your own mental health and wellbeing. I think it is highly, highly important to develop protective factors inside and outside of the workplace it's highly important to have a connection to your community, a connection to your family, a connection to your friends. It's highly important for work not to be the only thing that gets you out of bed every day. 
I think it is also highly important to access um, support services early. So prior to things uh, getting quite bad or the wheels becoming quite wobbly, I think it is important for everybody to have a range of supports that they can reach into, either inside their organisation, be it peer support, EAP, be it chaplaincy, be it formal mental health care, and externally in the community as well through an organisation like Fordham Australia. I think it's important that there is a suite of services available. It's like a, it's like a buffet, right? Uh, some people will come for the salad bar, some people will come for the dessert bar. It's the same with mental health services and programs. It's important that first responders reach into a support service that is right for them. I think in terms of tips and tricks, Dean, um, research shows that there are a number of really important protective things that people can do. I did mention that early clinical support and, and help seeking. I think it's important that early career first responders challenge the stigma that exists in this sector and to encourage each other to seek support. When somebody seeks support and they challenge that stigma, it's highly likely that people will stay employed in this line of work for quite some time and that they can continue to thrive. We know that a focus on good physical health is a protective factor for mental health and wellbeing. Having good sleep hygiene, now that's uh, some first responders will laugh at me when I say that because the nature of shift work and trauma experience means that it's really hard to have good sleep hygiene, but practicing what we know works for good sleep hygiene. And then once again, I cannot draw home the, in the importance anymore. It is highly, highly critical that people have uh, supports inside and outside the workplace. That connection to community and family is key. Uh, so those would be my pieces of advice the final one that i would say is it's okay to be impacted by this line of work you go to work every day you strap on a gun and you face some of the most challenging things that people will never experience in their life and you do that on a day-to-day basis that takes a toll and it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to seek support james that's uh, wonderful advice and thank you so much for your humanity and your insight into life policing, but also your trauma and how you have made this incredible journey back from that trauma. Uh, It's been wonderful to talk to you. Dean, thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Mindama podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindama podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain. Unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindarma.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing Mindarma into your workplace.